Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, and uh, we appreciate uh, our distinguished nominees for being here, and very importantly, uh, uh, Senator Thune. I do want you to know we normally start on time. Today's unusual. I know that uh, uh, Senator Menendez had a previous engagement that ran over. Today's committee will hold a nomination hearing for three very important positions. Our nominees today are Andrea Thompson to be Under Secretary of State for Arms Control and International Security Affairs, Susan Thornton to be the Assistant Secretary for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, and Francis Fannin to be the Assistant Secretary for Energy Resources. First, however, we have some distinguished guests. I know that Senator Gardner is here also to talk about one of the nominees who wish to, to introduce these nominees. And so we're going to allow them to proceed with their introduction so they can leave and do other duties. I know you've got a lot going on, both of you. Therefore, I'm going to po postpone my opening comment. And uh, I know that Senator Menendez has agreed to do the same and let you go ahead and do your introductions, and then we'll begin the, the process in the normal manner. So with that, um, I'd like to introduce uh, the well-known, distinguished Senator John Thune of South Dakota. Chairman Corker, thank you. Senator Menendez, members of the committee, um, it is a, uh, an honor and a privilege uh, to have the opportunity to introduce uh, to the committee uh, distinguished South Dakota native Colonel Andrea Thompson. I often say that South Dakota punches above its weight in service to the country, and Andrea is a stellar example of that. She's a fifth-generation South Dakotan whose family I've known for decades, and she is extremely qualified to serve as the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. She's currently a senior advisor at the State Department and previously was Deputy Assistant to the President and National Security Advisor to the Vice President at the White House. Prior to that, she served as the National Security Advisor for the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Homeland Security, the Executive Officer to the Undersecretary of the Army, and as the Senior Military Advisor to the House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee. She's undoubtedly familiar with the numerous challenges that Congress and the administration face today, but she's no stranger to the frank discussions that must take place to ensure that America responds to such threats with clear eyes. Andrea gave over 25 years of service to the United States Army, including combat deployments to Afghanistan as Intelligence Directorate Chief of Staff, Iraq as Senior Intelligence Officer for Multinational Division North, as well as tours in Bosnia, Herzegovina, or I'm sorry, Bosnia, Honduras, Belize, and Germany. As the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security, she will be tasked with leading the State Department's efforts on nonproliferation and verification of international agreements. There will be no shortage of trials. The members of the committee are well aware of the challenges the United States faces today, and I have full faith that Andrea will continue her exemplary service if confirmed. She will bring with her not only her depth of experience, but a humble sense of service that stems from her South Dakota roots. Andrea graduated from my graduate school alma mater, the University of South Dakota, with honors and received their Alumni Achievement Award in 2011. She went on to earn her Master of Science with honors at Long Island University and Master of Arts in National Security and Strategic Studies at National Defense University. But before she left South Dakota to begin her career of service, she was a standout high school and college athlete and even delivered the Argus Leader newspaper for six years. She's supported by her family back home, as well as her husband, David Gillian. And Mr. Chairman, Andrea Thompson has my vote of confidence as well. Thank you for the opportunity to introduce Andrea this morning. 
I urge my colleagues on this committee to see that she is quickly confirmed following the hearing today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you very much for being here, and um, you're welcome to go about your duties. You did not mention whether you graduated with honors from the same <laughs> university. I assume you did, but uh, but uh, I'm, yeah, thank I'm, you for pointing that out, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Uh, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the witnesses uh, for your time and testimony today, and more importantly, your service and commitment to our country. It's truly appreciated. It's my great honor to uh, introduce uh, Frank Fannin uh, for this position. Uh, I'm excited about uh, the work that you will be doing. I've known, uh, I've known Mr. Fannin, Frank, for a very long time. Uh, my, my time started uh, in the office of Senator Wayne Allard back uh, over 15 years ago now. Uh, and uh, that's where I had the opportunity to meet somebody who worked in the office of uh, Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell uh, from Colorado by the name of Frank Fran. And we never knew him by Francis. We did know him by Frank. Uh, and uh, the opportunity to, to work with, uh, with Frank on, on a number of issues important to Colorado and the West, uh, whatever, every issue from uh, our incredible exploration opportunities in Colorado on oil and gas to Good Samaritan legislation. Uh, that, uh, that uh, Mr. Fannin worked on not only in Senator Campbell's office, but prior to that in uh, Pete Domenici's office as well. Uh, after Senator Campbell's office, uh, had the opportunity to go work for uh, the EPW committee, served as counsel at the Environment and Public Works Committee uh, under our colleague Senator uh, Inhofe, uh, was instrumental in the writing and passage of the Energy Policy Act of 2005, uh, then he's spent the past several years in the private sector, working for a number of uh, uh, organizations from BHP to uh, Murphy to others, uh, where he's gained valuable experience on uh, how the policies that he helped craft through Senator Domenici's office, Senator Campbell's office, and EPW committee, how that works in the real world. And I think that's the kind of experience that we need at the State Department when we focus on the energy opportunities around the globe and the diplomacy that our energy gives us uh, the ability to utilize around the globe, that opportunity to um, flex our American energy independence uh, as it relates to our allies uh, from Europe to Asia and what that can do for uh, this country and our diplomatic efforts and our economic growth. Uh, so it's a great honor, again, to, to be with, the, with the Mr. Fannin and the nominees here today. Uh, I strongly support uh, the nomination of Frank Fannin. I hope uh, the rest of you will as well. And it's just good to see him grow up and do good things. Yeah. Well, it's good to see you grow up and do good things, too. Um, thank you both. And uh, we'll see you, Senator Fannin. Okay, thank you. Okay. Today we'll consider the nominations of three distinguished individuals, as we've said, to serve our nation at the State Department, each in an essential role. Andrea L. Thompson, the nominee for Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security Affairs, joined the Army after graduating from the University of South Dakota in 1988 and attained the rank of Colonel before retiring in 2016. She served in military intelligence with deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan, and Bosnia, most recently served as National Security Advisor to the Vice President. The Undersecretary for State of State for Arms Control supervises the Bureau's task with guaranteeing compliance with international arms treaties, licensing arms, arms sales to other countries, and monitoring nuclear nonproliferation around the globe. At a time when the Syrian regime uses chemical weapons against its own people and the Russian President Vladimir Putin fails to comply with the INF Treaty, we need an undersecretary at the helm to ensure verification of nonproliferation agreements, lead civilian nuclear cooperation efforts, and monitor rogue actors. One such rogue actor is North Korea. 
Addressing this threat is one of the Trump administration's top priorities, and the East Asian and Pacific Affairs Bureau is at the forefront of implementing this administration's maximum pressure and engagement strategy. Ms. Susan Thornton, a career Foreign Service officer, is the nominee to be Assistant Secretary for the EAP Bureau. Having served recently as the Acting Secretary, I know that Ms. Thornton is very well aware of a vast range of political and economic and security issues affecting U.S. national interest in the Asia Pacific. In addition, given her experience serving in Beijing, I know that Ms. Thornton recognizes that no country looms larger in the region nor stands to have a bigger impact on U.S. national interests in the coming years than China. While engagement with Beijing poses significant challenges, Ms. Thornton also will be at task with efforts to strengthen U.S. relations with critical allies and partners in the region, including Japan and Vietnam. Our third nominee today is Frank Fannin who has been nominated to be Assistant Secretary for Energy Resources. This bureau is responsible for policy development and implementation with respect to U.S. international security, energy security. Energy plays such an important role in our economy, and our nas national security depends on ensuring access to abundant, reliable, and affordable energy. With his extensive background working with the Senate Energy Committee and working for various private sector firms in the energy sector, Mr. Fannin is well qualified for this position. Today's nominees seek to take on responsibilities that are crucial to our national security on so many fronts around the world. We thank all of you for your willingness uh, to be here to serve our nation in this regard and uh, look forward to your testimony. With that, I'd like to turn to our distinguished ranking member, Bob Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, <clears throat> for holding this hearing today. Before, uh, we, uh, I comment on our witnesses. I need to comment on the administration's proposed foreign affairs budget for fiscal year 19 because, honestly, I find it to be stunningly irresponsible. A budget is a reflection of our priorities and our values and an opportunity to commit resources to fulfilling a mission. It's often said, if you show me your budget, I'll tell you our strategy. Well, if that's true, then the administration has a very bad strategy. Far from putting America first, the Trump administration's budget would put America last. This request would slash almost 30% of the FY17 enacted levels, undermining our leadership on a global stage and our ability to effectively serve the American people and promote our national security interests. Furthermore, the request runs counter to the very goals and ideals the administration seeks to champion and those it define in its own national security strategy, which calls for robust diplomatic engagement in maintaining our position of global leadership. So as you said, Mr. Chairman, last year we largely rejected that last budget. I think this one needs to be rejected as well. And I look forward to working with you and colleagues on the Appropriations Committee to provide adequate funding for our diplomats, development officers, and frontline civilians working to promote American national security. Let me thank our nominees for their willingness to serve. And in particular, I want to recognize the many years that Colonel Thompson and Ms. Thornton have spent in public service. For decades, one of the core objectives of U.S. foreign policy has been to limit as much as possible the spread of nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. The success of our nonproliferation efforts has always depended upon gaining the cooperation of other states through legally binding treaties and agreements, U.N. Security Council resolutions, and bilateral cooperative efforts. We need effective United States leadership that inspires and encourages others to join us to meet these threats with a united coalition. Additionally, Colonel Thompson, if you're confirmed, your role as Undersecretary will put you in a unique position 
to strengthen states' ability to provide our allies and partners robust and effective security assistance while also ensuring that human rights and the protection of civilians are taken into account when providing such assistance. Ms. Thornton, in nominating you to serve as the Assistant Secretary for East Asia and the Pacific, it's my hope this means the President intends to listen to knowledgeable and sound advice on our policy towards the Asia-Pacific region. As a Pacific nation ourselves, our national security policy must recognize that much of America's 21st century political and economic future lies in the Asia-Pacific region, and it is imperative that we engage with the region, not pull away from it. Yet the administration talks about the importance of a free and open Indo-Pacific region as actions speak differently. While the administration talks about the importance of our alliances and partnerships, its actions call our commitments into question. The administration uh, talks about how our principles are embedded in our policy, but its actions undermines our values. And while the administration talks about the challenge of a revisionist China, its actions seek to risk ceding the region to a strategic rival. The United States needs to have a strategic and values-driven presence in the region that includes our military and the full range of American diplomatic tools and resources. Such an approach is necessary to deal with a wide range of challenges, including the crisis of a nuclear-armed North Korea, making clear our commitments to our allies, and managing our relationship with China. Finally, any policy for a free and open Indo-Pacific region must have human rights and democracy at its core. For too long in the region, the United States has treated human rights as desirable, but dispensable. Instead, we should be using our values as a source of strength and comparative advantage over illiberal forces in the region. Mr. Fan, I want to thank you for your meeting with me in my office yesterday. I appreciate your willingness to serve. But given the focus of your career, I want to explore some of the concerns that I expressed to you uh, yesterday. You have been a forceful advocate for the fossil fuel and extractive industries. So I want to know how you will execute ENR's core objectives, which includes, quote, advising on energy issues as they relate to, among others, pursuit of alternative energy and energy efficiency and greater transparency and accountability in the energy sector. I look forward to continuing to explore that conversation with you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, I, uh, have to, we are having a major uh, debate and vote on the floor on DREAMers. And I'm going to have to go for a few minutes to that. I have read all of the testimony, and I've read all the witnesses. I intend to be back for the questions, but uh, I'm going to have to excuse myself for a few minutes. Thank you. Absolutely. So with that, uh, if you would, if you could take about five minutes to uh, give them some opening statements. There will be questions, and if you would do so in the order introduced, we'd appreciate it. Again, thank you for being here. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of this committee. It's an honor to be with you here today as President Trump's nominee for Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. I am humbled by this opportunity, with your approval, to serve in the administration and work with you, the White House, Secretary Tillerson, and the dedicated professionals of the State Department. I would like to take this opportunity to thank some very important people in my life. I'm joined today by my incredible husband, David Gillian, and many dear friends. Thank you for your love and support. I'd also like to thank my parents, Phil and Georgia Hansen, who are watching at home in South Dakota, and a special hello to my mother-in-law, Meg Gillian, and my grandfather, Dean Nelson, who's 92 years young. Finally, I'd like to send recognition to my family and friends who couldn't be here today, but have served as role models and mentors throughout my life. I'm a proud South Dakotan, and it's the values and work ethic of those that I grew up with that always showed me what right looks like. I'd also like to thank Senator Thune for his kind words and appreciation for representation of our great state. I had the privilege of serving this administration before as Vice President Pence's National Security Advisor. During my tenure, 
I work with the NSC, members and staff of Congress, leaders across the departments of state, defense, treasury, commerce, and energy, to name just a few. However, my background in international security and the importance of those relationships began years before, during my 28-year career as a military officer. From leading troops in Iraq, Afghanistan, Bosnia, Germany, Central America, and other locations across the globe, I saw firsthand the importance of relationships with our allies and partners and the critical need for a strong and steadfast security structure. I've seen both the successes and failures of our arms control policy. I've been on the receiving end when diplomacy fails. If confirmed, I commit to you that I will always place the safety and security of the American people first. I'm also fully cognizant of the profound responsibilities of senior leadership. During my military service and in the private sector, leadership was my legacy. Bringing people together with different strengths and viewpoints to work towards a common goal is an exciting challenge. The State Department's arms control and international security team of over 600 talented men and women are committed to advancing our US policies and protecting its people. They are the backbone of our nation's most important policy decisions, negotiations, and treaties. These professionals cover arms control and international security issues, nonproliferation matters, including missile, nuclear, chemical, biological, and conventional weapons proliferation, export control policies, and foreign assistance programs, all of which are of vital national security interest to the United States. I'm excited about the opportunity to lead this team, if confirmed. I also look forward to working with my colleagues at the State Department, other US government agencies, Congress, and our international community. This administration has clearly set a high priority for our nuclear posture, arms control, nonproliferation, and political military policies. The President and Vice President's commitment in these areas has been and will remain steadfast. The recent review of our nuclear and missile defense postures offered critical opportunities to outline the vision of how this administration will work to ensure our security in the face of the world's most destructive weapons. If confirmed, I look forward to regularly consulting and engaging our allies and partners both at home and abroad on these important deterrence, strategic stability, and defense issues. The threat of WMD proliferation continues, and the role of the United States and its leadership to counter that threat remain as great as ever. By continuing to work with our allies and the international community, we send a clear message to those who violate UN Security Council resolutions, establish treaties, and agreements. We must continue to put maximum pressure on those regimes through diplomatic and economic sanctions, including robust implementation of US sanctions legislation. Along with our partners and allies, we must continue to improve upon our capabilities, strengthen our resolve, and force these regimes to change their behavior. Much has been done, but there is much more to do. As our enemies adapt and technologies evolve, so must we. I appreciate the work that's been done by this committee and if confirmed, I welcome the opportunity to collaborate with all of you in that endeavor. As one of its first legislative decisions over two centuries ago, our Congress prescribed an oath, establishing a bond between the people of this great nation and those who have committed themselves to service to the American people. I first took this oath 30 years ago. This is the same oath that you have taken. It would be my highest honor to again serve the American people and support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, and members of this committee, I am honored to be considered for this critical appointment. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you. I welcome your comments and your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Thornton. 
Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee, it is my great honor to appear here today as the President's nominee to serve as Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs. I have been privileged to serve this great country of ours and to have worked with so many dedicated and talented public servants over the course of my Foreign Service career. I would like to thank the President and Secretary Tillerson for placing their trust and confidence in me. If Confirmed, I pledge to this committee that I will devote my full energies to advancing America's interests in the East Asia Pacific region. Uh, I'd like to take the opportunity here to thank my family, my husband Joe and daughter Kate, who are here with me today, my two older children, Ben and Ann, who both went to three different high schools as we moved around from place to place, uh, and my mom and dad. They have been an incredible support network for me and have all sacrificed a lot to get me here. I want to express my profound gratitude to all of them. I joined the United States Foreign Service more than 25 years ago now and have served five different administrations in postings from Beijing to Moscow, Ashgabat to Chengdu, and of course in Washington. I've worked on issues from nonproliferation to trade agreements to human rights and many other important issues. I have never ceased to appreciate how lucky I am to have this wonderful career. Several of my former colleagues in this position have reached out to me in recent weeks to make sure that I knew that this was the best job in the world, and I am certainly honored and humbled to have the prospect of joining their company if confirmed. There's no part of the world that will be more consequential for our children's future than the Asia Pacific region. With one third of the world's population, one third of the global GDP, and some of the largest and most dynamic economies in the world, it is clear that the Asia-Pacific will be key to America's future well-being and our prosperity. We exported over $400 billion in goods to EAP countries in 2017, which is up 160% from a decade ago. This region is also home to five U.S. treaty allies, with over 80,000 U.S. troops living, training, and operating alongside their partner host country forces to undertake a range of missions from counterterrorism to search and rescue to disaster relief and others. It is crucial for U.S. interests that this era remains stable and prosperous. But there are very real security and economic challenges in the Asia-Pacific region, including the menacing threat of North Korea, of course, the rise of an authoritarian China, and the spread of terrorism and extremism. Backsliding on democracy, governance, corruption, and human rights is also undermining prospects for stability and growth in some countries. Dealing effectively with these challenges in this crucial part of the world requires the strength and resolve of U.S. diplomatic leadership, and this administration's approach to the Asia-Pacific puts our strong and active leadership at the forefront of international efforts to meet these challenges. On North Korea, the Trump administration has mobilized the entire international community mm -hmm. through our campaign of global maximum pressure to come together to face down Kim Jong-un's attempts to develop his nuclear and ballistic missile capabilities. The UN Security Council unanimously passed four sanctions resolutions last year and additional worldwide efforts to further isolate North Korea diplomatically and economically make clear that we will not accept a nuclear North Korea. Our preference is to achieve denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula through a diplomatic settlement, but we will reach this goal one way or another. 
With regards to China, as this administration has made clear, the United States wants a productive relationship with China and we must work to manage and resolve differences. We have been equally clear, however, that we will not abide Chinese attempts to displace the United States in Asia, to coerce countries in the region, and that we will not be taken advantage of. If the international system that has enabled China's rise is to continue, then rules and standards must be observed and countries must not be bullied or threatened, but treated as equal players. The administration under President Trump's leadership is working to also expand and deepen partnerships throughout the region via our Indo-Pacific strategy. We also continue to prioritize work in APEC to promote high standards, fair trade, and to support ASEAN-centered regional architecture, which underpins East Asian peace and security. The United States is a Pacific power and will remain committed to this region's success. In short, I am humbled to be considered for this important position, and if confirmed, I look forward to working with you to further the prospects of the United States in this part of the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mr. Fannin. Thank you, Senator Gardner, for your gracious introduction. Chairman Corker and distinguished members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you as the President's nominee to serve as Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Resources. I'm thankful to President Trump and Secretary Tillerson for the confidence they have placed in me to undertake this critical role. I'm proud that members of my family join me today. I'd like to introduce my wife, Mercer, whose partnership and support are foundational to any success and career and life I have, may have been fortunate enough to achieve. I'm also delighted that my two eldest daughters, Madeline and Charlotte, are here today and suspect that our 23-month-old, Phoebe, is watching from home with my mother-in-law, Marsha Planting. I'd like to acknowledge my parents, Frank and Susanna Fannin, who are watching the live stream. Through their sacrifices, they taught me that the American dream is very much alive, that with dedication and effort, anyone can achieve great things, and that success is not determined from where you're from, but where you choose to go. My grandparents, mother, and her sisters immigrated to the United States from Argentina in 1969. They left everything behind in hopes to realize a better life, an aspirational life that only America could offer. My personal family history and experience have shaped me in many ways and gave me a personal appreciation for other cultures and nations. I came to Washington without contacts or a job, but with the unwavering desire to serve. After working for the late Senator Domenici and home state Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell, I realized my greatest professional privilege until this day to serve as energy counsel to the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works. While at EPW, I helped the committee with energy issues and drafted provisions of the Bipartisan Energy Policy Act of 2005. That legislation helped to unleash American innovation and set the conditions for today's energy abundance. Thanks to our resource wealth, American energy plays an ever more vital role in American diplomacy. The U.S. can more freely confront oppressive and illegitimate regimes now that American production buffers global markets against supply shocks. And American energy and technology strengthens the economies of partners who share our values. In the private sector, I sought to leverage that abundance to advance American values and sustainable operations across five continents. I worked with and led cross-functional, globally located, and culturally diverse teams. I saw firsthand how energy and resource projects can catalyze development, and the benefits of constructive government engagement. In this capacity, I work with the department on multiple energy projects and can attest that its dedicated foreign and civil service experts serve the country with great distinction. Given the rapidly changing energy landscape, the dynamic foreign policy environment, and the way in which energy overlaps with foreign policy, it's critical 
to have a strong, informed, and enabled Energy Bureau, or ENR. If confirmed, I hope to work with the committee by focusing on three objectives. Energy security through diplomacy, governance, and electricity for all. Secretary Tillerson has stated that enhancing energy security by ensuring access to affordable, reliable, diverse, and secure supplies of energy is fundamental to national security. ENR is uniquely positioned to lead American diplomatic energy security interests in coordination with other agencies. If confirmed, I pledge to promote energy diplomacy as a means to foster collaboration among nations and oppose the weaponization of energy for geopolitical ends. Developing countries may have considerable resource endowments but lack institutional frameworks and transparent rule of law. U.S. companies often view these above-ground conditions as prohibitive risk profiles, yet they also make them prime targets for state-owned enterprises hostile to liberal democratic values. ENR's governance programs and support transparency reforms reduce potential for exploitation and advance U.S. energy security objectives. According to the International Energy Agency, 1.2 billion people lack access to electricity and 2.7 billion lack clean cooking facilities. Energy poverty are development and geopolitical security challenges. A country's inability to provide reliable electricity is indicative of broader capacity limitations and a precursor to domestic unrest. If confirmed, I look forward to identifying ways that the Bureau can build and broaden its work in this area. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. I typically uh, defer. I may ask one question of Susan Thornton. I know we had a nice meeting uh, last night, and I appreciate you coming by so late. Um, I had a debrief, I guess, with Senator Menendez a couple of days ago uh, from Vice President Pence uh, relative to some of the discussions that took place in South Korea. Um, it's my sense that uh, the South Koreans, uh, the Japanese, and others are joined at the hip with us as it relates to North Korea. Uh, it's my sense that we are um, certainly open to having meetings with North Korea uh, as long as the subject matter is one thing, and that's the denuclearization of the peninsula, period. And it's my understanding that, that while discussions like that may take place at some point in the future, uh, it'll take place on the basis that we're going to continue to clamp down working with others uh, to uh, isolate them even further, put tougher sanctions in place, that there will be no reprieve to have a discussion. I'm wondering if you would verify that to be your thinking and want to add to that in any regard. Thank you very much, Senator, and thank you very much for the meeting that we had yesterday. Um, I think that the policy that we have in place that was put in place at the very beginning of the administration, the maximum global pressure campaign, that envisions increasing pressure through an international coalition in order to change the calculus of the North Korean regime is still very much in place. We have built a very solid international coalition in lockstep with our allies and partners. We have brought on board many countries in the world that would not normally be at the center of this effort, and we are continuing to do that. We envision the pressure continuing to ramp up. There will not be any let up on pressure. We are leaving the door open to engagement, as you, as you rightly stated. And we want that engagement to consist of one issue, which is denuclearization, our overarching goal for this policy. 
Tell me what it is. Uh, why is it that you think we've been able to put together this coalition of people to put the most pressure ever uh, on North Korea right now? Well, I think um, there are two two aspects to that. One is that the threat uh, from North Korea through the testing that Kim Jong-un regime has done has become much more urgent and much more serious. And um, I think the other uh, issue is the administration's resolve, frankly, and determination to uh, increase the pressure, tap every possible outlet for, for putting that pressure on and for putting a lot of diplomatic shoe leather into gathering this coalition, we're sending people to all corners of the globe to talk to governments about what they can do to further squeeze the North Korean regime diplomatically and economically and isolate them. And I'm reserve the rest of my time, but who is it that's leading the coordination of this effort? Who is the sort of center driving force of this coordinated effort? Well, we have a, a very, um, uh, clearly coordinated interagency policy uh, committee working on the overall North Korea policy, which generated the March 2017 review and, and policy that we're following. The State Department is leading the diplomatic effort to undertake maximum global pressure campaign, but it's complemented by efforts from our DOD colleagues, from our intelligence colleagues, and a lot of other people around, around the U.S. government. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I thank all th three of our nominees for their willingness to, to serve their country. Uh, Thornton, I, I think it, the Assistant Secretary for East Asia and Pacific is a dream job, so I'm, uh, I'm glad that you have that enthusiasm and your service to our country, uh, career service, is, is, is very much noted. It gives you, though, the responsibility to coordinate our policies in that region, and I want to just focus for one moment on your commitment on human rights. East Asia and Pacific has significant challenges in good governance, human rights, corruption, trafficking, you name it. And on the bilateral relationships at the missions, a lot of times these issues get sort of pushed to the side because of the urgency of a particular security issue at the time. And it's the responsibility of the position you've been nominated to to make sure they never forget the values that this nation stands for. So in North Korea, yes, the nuclear confrontation is our challenge, but you have a country that is at the bottom on human rights. In China, you have a country that made some progress, is now moving in the wrong direction on protecting the human rights of its citizens. In Burma, it's exploded into a full-out crisis with the Rohingya Muslims. Lives are at risk. And then our traditional allies, the Philippines, uh, has, uh, we've seen where the extrajudicial killings have taken place. So will you just reaffirm to this committee your commitment that human rights will be the priority and that you will, in your contact with each of our missions in, under, your juris, under your supervision, remind them that you expect progress to be made on the human rights front and share that information with this committee? Yes, thank you, Senator, for the question. But yes, I think that uh, certainly standing up for democracy, human rights, clean governance is, is part of who we are. Um, it's part of our foreign policy, an integral part. And I think it needs to be part of every conversation that we have with governments around the world, whether it's on nonproliferation, uh, energy issues, 
um, or trade issues. Human rights comes into everything that the United States does with partner governments overseas. And I think I'll certainly commit to you that that will be a standard that I will bear and that I will continue to communicate with the committee on this. And one area you can specifically help us with is that I have been in communication with our ambassadors or chief of missions of all of the countries asking them to reply to a commitment they made during their nomination process to keep this committee informed on their human rights agenda. My understanding is that sometimes those letters have a long way of getting to me because they're in the bureaucracy of the State Department. Will you make sure that we get timely responses to those inquiries? Yes. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Thompson, I, there's a lot of questions I'm going to like to ask you, but let me, let me just go to the basics. Let's start with civil nuclear. One, two, three agreements, gold standards. Are you committed to maintaining the gold standard wherever we can in any future one, two, three agreements? Thank you, Senator, and, and thank you for making the time last week uh, for our office call. Uh, I commit to you that I will always represent for, in negotiations for the United States the highest standard possible for the safety and security, first and foremost for the American people, but to get the highest standard possible. Uh, I think the community recognizes that the agreement with the UAE is set as a gold standard uh, and would look to achieve that standard. Um, again, I, there are ongoing dialogues that I haven't been privy to, uh, but once, uh, if confirmed, uh, once fully briefed, I look forward to continue that dialogue with, with you, with this committee, to ensure we get the highest standard possible. In our conversation, I appreciate it. We, we, we covered a lot of issues, including INF and the New START. Uh, and just to put on the record, assuming Russia's in compliance with the New START agreements, it's, it's, are, are we committed to making sure the United States also complies and stays in the New START agreements? We are, sir. Uh, it was a very positive sign last week with, uh, with both parties making the central limits uh, to the New START agreement. We have a few years to assess uh, for, the, for the extension with that, but a very promising sign based on last week. It still needs final verification, uh, but I look forward to continuing to uh, see the, the progress of that, uh, that treaty, uh, and if confirmed, we'll continue to uphold those standards. Mr. Vannon, I want to first thank you for your uh, support of 1504 and communication with the SEC in regards to transparency within the extractive industries. Uh, we very much appreciated your, your leadership on that issue. Uh, as, as I understand it, uh, you recognize the threat of foreign interest on energy. Uh, we just issued a report on Russia using energy as a, as, as a weapon of war. The Nord Stream 2, uh, I, I don't know if we have official position opposing it, but we would expect that that's a major area where we could you know, uh, minimize Russia's impact by opposing Nord Stream 2. Do you agree? Yes. Sorry. Yes, Senator. Um, in fact, uh, my understanding is Secretary Tillerson has, has publicly uh, raised his voices strong opposition to Nord Stream 2. Uh, and if confirmed, I would continue to advance alternate ways to uh, lessen the vulnerabilities that Europe has from the Russian gas dependence. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and again, thanks to all of you for uh, your service. Uh, Ms. Thornton, thank you very much for the time yesterday to have a conversation about uh, goals and objectives in Asia. Uh, we have been, as we talked about, Senator Markey and I working on uh, the North Korea issues, uh, developing a comprehensive Asia strategy, uh, something that would focus on three things, uh, economic uh, strategy in Asia, a national security strategy in Asia, and a, a rule of law strategy in Asia. More than just a four-year or eight-year outlook of any presidency, it's important that we have a long-term strategy in the United States that gives us a generational view 
uh, in Asia. As you mentioned, uh, a third, a third, a third GDP population, but uh, soon to have one half of global GDP, one half of uh, global population, five of the seven defense uh, treaties. So and largest armies and some of the largest standing armies in the, in the world all concentrated in Asia. So we've got to get this right. Do you believe it's important that we have a long-term Asia strategy? Thank you, Senator, and thank you again for the time yesterday. Um, yeah, I think it's, it is important that we keep in mind our long-term interests. They are, they are um, certainly enduring, and I think we need to have a strategy that matches that. I think that the, the President's Indo-Pacific strategy that was announced in November in Da Nang, uh, Vietnam, um, is, is looking at all of the issues, the pillars that you just mentioned on diplomatic and political, on security and on economic, um, and also on the rule of law and governance issues. So I think it's very critical that we keep in mind um, what our long-term goals are and adjust our strategy. Thanks. And will you commit, me with, uh, commit to me to work with us on this strategy and this legislation? Yes. Thank you. Attorney to North Korea, the goal of complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization remains the absolute commitment of this administration. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, there is no other uh, strategy or device other than, uh, right now, our application of maximum pressure, both economically and diplomatically, correct? Correct. Uh, would you continue to work with uh, me, this committee, uh, and Senator Markey on uh, sanctions legislation to uh, make sure that we apply that maximum pressure? Yes, if confirmed, I commit to work with you on all of that. Uh, and I hope that you will continue to support appropriate sanctions on not only North Korean entities, but also third-party uh, entities that are enabling and empowering the North Korean regime, including those out of China? Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, and uh, when it comes to China, the National Security Strategy states just released, China and Russia challenge American power, influence, and interests attempting to erode American security and prosperity. China seeks to displace the United States in the Indo-Pacific region, expand the reaches of its state-driven economic model, and reorder the region in its favor. China is using economic inducements and penalties, influence operations, and implied military threats to persuade other states to heed its political and security agenda. Uh, do you agree with those statements? Yes. Uh, what policies should the United States pursue to counter China's role in the Indo-Pacific region? Well, I think we have to uh, first and foremost deepen and expand our partnerships and our alliances in the region and uh, do in, in some form or other similar to what we're doing in the case of North Korea, which is bring together uh, like-minded countries to promote the rules-based order, to push back on bad behavior, and to insist that countries in the region avoid and refrain from coercive tactics, bullying, and that they abide by um, a regime where all countries have an equal say in, in their decision-making. Uh, do you believe China will continue its efforts to militarize the South China Sea? I think they will try. And what is our response appropriately to be? Well, I think we need to use all tools that we have at our disposal. We have diplomatic tools at our disposal. We're using our um, uh, freedom of navigation operations to push back on excessive um, maritime claims in the region. And we're also, um, you know, using our coalitions and support of partners in the region to push back against Chinese behavior. And during your time in, in uh, the Foreign Service, uh, which developments in the U.S.-China relationship have, uh, have you seen that have most uh, disappointed you? I think that uh, in the U.S.-China relationship, uh, there has been... Um, you know, a lot of uh, hope placed in the reform process in China, 
So I think it's quite disappointing to see the backsliding on reforms, both economic and also the certainly the political atmosphere in China tightening and, and repression uh, for individual freedoms um, increasing in recent years. And you do, do you believe right now that the United States is doing enough uh, to pressure China on behavior ranging from uh, continued cyber intrusions of uh, U.S. corporations to violations of human rights to um, militarization uh, through its um, expansion, expansive activities uh, in the One Belt, One Road? I think we're doing a lot to push back on all of that, but I think we are looking at doing more, and I think that's appropriate. What does a free and open Indo-Pacific mean to you? To me, that means um, open access for to global commons for all countries, um, open uh, sort of trade and um, trade lanes, and uh, continuation of rules-based systems that allow all countries to participate on an equal footing in that region. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator Merkley. Oh, uh, thank you, and. Uh, let me begin with uh, Mr. Fannin. Welcome. And Germany is considering a massive LNG project called Nord Stream uh, that would essentially make Germany's economy dependent on Russia for its uh, sizable share of its energy for the generation to come. Do we have strategic concerns about that type of dependence? Thank you for the question, Senator, and thank you for taking the time to, to visit with me yesterday. Um, absolutely. Uh, my understanding, the, the U.S. has publicly opposed it. Secretary Tillerson has opposed it uh, repeatedly. Um, it highlights the dependency on, of Europe on further vulnerability on, on uh, Russian gas. Um, and the United States' position, is, is my understanding, is, is strongly uh, to oppose that pipeline. Thank, thank you very much. And Ms. Thompson, uh, in August of last year, President Moon Jae-in said the U.S. has agreed not to take any military action against North Korea without first getting South Korea's approval. And General Dunford uh, responded that South Korea is an ally, ally and everything we do in the region is in the context of our alliance. Uh, will we pay significant attention to South Korea's position in regards to potential military strikes on North Korea? Thank you for that question, Senator, and thank you for making the time yesterday. I think uh, particularly in, in the region, we've uh, strengthened our relationships with this administration with visits from the Secretary's Defense, uh, Tillerson, the President, the Vice President, uh, but the, sh the short answer is yes. Uh, it's critical that we have our allies and partners, whether it's Japan, uh, South Korea, we're strengthening the relationships with China. Uh, to, to I think I'll just take yes. Uh, you had me at yes. Okay, sir. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So... Uh, our administration is considering a 123 agreement with Saudi Arabia that would not have the gold standard on nonproliferation, which is prohibiting uranium enrichment and plutonium reprocessing. Of course, the goal is not to create the foundation for the potential uh, for a nuclear weapons program. Uh, we have, of course, uh, the, 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 the largest Shiite power, Iran, and the largest Sunni power, Saudi Arabia. Uh, we've been doing everything we can to uh, have Iran not pursue a nuclear weapons program. Uh, should we al allow Saudi Arabia to, to proceed with American technology in nuclear power plants that do not have the gold standard, given the risk of creating that competition between the two and, and undermining our own efforts to prevent Iran from, from getting a nuclear bomb? 
Thank you, thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, and I know the talks are ongoing. <clears throat> I haven't been privy to those talks, and I know the talks uh, predated this particular administration. Uh, but it is my goal that to have the strongest nonproliferation standards as possible. Uh, we briefly addressed earlier with the UAE with the gold standard. Uh, and if confirmed, I look forward to working with this committee and with interagency to ensure that we get the strongest standards possible for that agreement. Does it give you any concern, though, that if we have standards for Saudi Arabia, that, that uh, Iran, as the competing Shiite power, will say, well, you're not treating the two of us equally and, and make it harder for us to pursue a no nuclear weapon uh, policy? We did ask Iran, and, and as part of the agreement, to dismantle their Iraq reactor, pour concrete in the core, and so on and so forth. Senator, I can commit to you that I will work to achieve the highest standard achievable. Uh, again, I, I don't know what agreements have been incurred in the past, but I can tell you and commit to you that I will work for our country to get the stronger standards achievable. Back in 2003, uh, we uh, negotiated an agreement with Libya to surrender, discontinue all elements of its nuclear weapon development program. Uh, what confidence would North Korea's Kim regime have that a similar decision to denuclearize would not result in the same fate as befell Gaddafi? I've, I've uh, not you know, met, met the leader. I, I, I would not wager to get what's in his mind. What I can say is the maximum pressure campaign from this administration uh, has taken steps to put pressure on the regime. Uh, we've seen some movement, and obviously, as, as uh, the Assistant Secretary mentioned, with the relationship with China and cutting down the financial footholds. Uh, I don't know uh, uh, the relationships, if we can, uh, with, with the North Korean regime, I don't know if uh, he parallels any other regime, sir, quite candidly. All the experts in the region, when we visited there, uh, noted that North Korea paid a lot of attention to what happened with Qaddafi. Um, so I'm just asking you if, if that's, uh, with your, your background in national security, if that was a real uh, concern in the, the message that was sent through that action in terms of our efforts to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. Yes, sir, it is absolutely a data point. Okay. Uh, in our, did I run out of time already? You how did. did that happen? Yes, how did that happen? Thank you. Thank you so much. Senator Young. Well, thank you, Chairman. Uh, congratulations to each of you for your uh, nominations. Thank you for visiting with me in my office, and I appreciate your previous history of service. Um, President Trump, uh, Mr. Fannin, said in November of last year that economic security is national security. Do you agree with this? Yes, Senator. Okay. Um, do you believe energy security is an in integral component of economic security? Yes, Senator. And so uh, my inference would be that you'd also agree that energy security is, is a necessary and important part of our national security. I do. Okay, when it comes to the uh, economic and energy security of this country, do you agree that the actions and priorities of the Bureau of Energy and Natural Resources can be optimized if they're carried out in support of a written strategic plan for the Bureau? Senator, thank you for the question. Uh, this, this question shouldn't come as a surprise because we discussed it in my office. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that I would just point out that the the foundation would be the, the national security strategy, which speaks to this uh, very issue. Uh, I think from our conversation, um, you raised the point, how can we delineate that with, with a little bit more granularity and have more measurable uh, outcomes? And I think that there's, uh, if confirmed, I would like to work with you on how, uh, how just to do that. Um, 
So based on your preparation for this hearing, does, um, uh, do you know whether ENR periodically produces uh, some sort of written strategy? I do not, Senator. Well, you weren't aware of one when we previously uh, uh, discussed it. So um, if confer confirmed, uh, will you provide my office a copy of a written strategy? Yes, Senator. It would be my intention to help, uh, if confirmed, to, uh, to work with the Bureau and other partners to, to, to come up with something that, that would uh, achieve that goal. Okay. A written, a written strategy. It's important to me. I understand, Senator. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Ms. Thompson, um, if confirmed, I understand you'll lead the interagency policy related to uh, arms transfers and security assistance. Do you agree that the U.S. government should fully comply with all laws related to security assistance? I do, Senator. And during our meeting yesterday, we discussed the potential need to update and refine some of those laws. So if confirmed, do you and your team commit to working closely with me and members of my team to determine whether we can improve U.S. laws related to security assistance? Absolutely, Senator. All right, Absolutely. thank you. In the Senate Intel Committee's hearing this week on worldwide threats, our Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coats, a Hoosier, reiterated that Iran has the largest ballistic missile program in the Middle East. He warned that Iran may develop an ICBM that could strike the United States. He noted Iran's space program could shorten Tehran's path to an ICBM. The intel community has consistently warned that Tehran would choose ballistic missiles as its preferred method of delivering nuclear weapons if it acquired them. Ms. Thompson, do you agree with these DNI codes and uh, intel community assessments? Yes, sir, I do. I'd also note a January 25 report by the Foundation for Defense of Democracies that documented as many as 23 ballistic missile launches by Iran just since the conclusion of the July 2015 Iran deal. Based on these concerns, on February 6, Senator Rubio joined me in leading a letter to our president regarding Iran's ballistic missile program. Our letter was signed by 14 United States senators. Mr. Chairman, uh, with unanimous consent, uh, I'd like to enter that letter into the record. Without objection. Ms. Thompson, have you had a chance to review our letter? I, I did, Senator. Thank you. Well, then you'll know our letter calls for tough additional sanctions against Iran and expresses a desire to work with the administration. So if confirmed, will you work with my office uh, and this committee to determine what additional sanctions we might impose on Iran to counter its uh, ballistic missile program? If confirmed, I commit that I will work with you and this committee. Absolutely, Senator. Absolutely. Thank you. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations to each of you on your nominations. Um, I look forward to working with you if confirmed. Can I ask Ms. Thornton, I had a briefing with some other senators yesterday with um, someone from the White House who made it very clear that there is no bloody nose strategy for a strike against North Korea. And, I, and we asked him if we could go out and quote him on that, and he said yes. Is it your understanding as well that there is no bloody nose strategy against North Korea? That is my understanding, Senator, yes. Thank you. Um, how concerned are you that we don't yet have an ambassador in South Korea, given the challenges we're facing on the Korean Peninsula? And, and what can you describe um, what that means in terms of our diplomacy and 
that area. Thank you. Uh, well, of course, as a career diplomat, um, I'm very, very well aware of the importance of having um, a representative of the president that's confirmed on the ground to represent us in, in all countries, but especially in, in South Korea. And I know that our team is working very hard with the White House uh, on a nomination for our ambassador in, in South Korea. I do want to point out, though, that we do have a tremendous team at the embassy uh, in South Korea and a very, very capable uh, charge d'affaires out there, Mark Knapper, who has been doing an incredible job over the last almost year. Um, I certainly would second that. I think we have um, very impressive uh, diplomats in our embassies, but it does send a message to the country where, um, to South Korea and to other um, countries in the region about how we view the importance, I think. I heard from a German official recently who was expressing concern that we don't yet have an ambassador to Germany either, and that that sends a message. So I do hope that you will do everything you can to expedite and move this process along, because we shouldn't be a full year into a new administration and not have an ambassador in a country that is so critical to foreign policy in that region. Um, can I? Ask Mr. Fannin, you spoke to, I believe it was Senator Cardin's questions about Nord Stream 2 and sanctions. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, the Sanctions Act, CATSA, that we passed last year uh, would authorize sanctions against um, energy projects that Russia is engaged in that involve a certain level of their participation. Um, so far, no sanctions have been imposed to date. Um, what we have heard from the State Department spokesperson is that um, we don't need to impose sanctions under CATSA. I'm paraphrasing here that just the threat is a deterrence. Do you believe that to be the case with energy projects? And are there any examples that you can provide? Uh, I'm, apologies, Senator, but in, with respect to the the question is, is it directed to the CATSA in particular? Um, it is. Are there any sanctions that you think should be applied under CATSA relative to Russia's energy projects? Thank you for the for the clarification, Senator. I uh, I've not been briefed on on on, uh, on these issues substantively, um, not being outside of the department and given uh, the security issues at play. Um, I'm, I'm but, aware but you of were able to comment on Nord Stream, too. Is that, would you put that in a different category than other projects? Well, with respect to, to that, uh, Nord Stream 2, I was referring to the Secretary's uh, com public comments on, on that matter. Um, with respect to CATS, I'm aware of, of the legislation that passed with overwhelming support. Um, I'm aware that the department intends to apply pressure to change Russia's behavior. Um, and if confirmed, I'll pledge to work with the committee and throughout the interagency to, to do just that. Thank you. Colonel Thompson, in response to Russia's violations of the INF Treaty, the administration has decided to initiate U.S. research and development on ground-based cruise missiles that would not be treaty compliant. Um, as I understand, this step would not violate the INF Treaty, but it would set us on a different course. Do you believe that beginning R&D on this type of missile 
will have any impact on Russia? Will they be willing to come back into compliance if we begin to do this kind of research? And are, are there any risks that you see in this approach? Thank you for the question, Senator. I think it's important that the U.S. maintain uh, our compliance with the treaty. Uh, as I haven't been fully briefed, uh, but look forward to receiving, if confirmed, those briefings. Uh, my understanding is that the R, as you mentioned, that the R&D doesn't violate that treaty. I think it's important uh, as an old soldier and as hopefully, if confirmed, future undersecretary, that we continue uh, to conduct those R&D efforts. Those are, some of those are very long-term uh, long projects, and we wouldn't want to get flat-footed. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Risch. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. First of all, I want to thank Senator Shaheen for uh, bringing up the, quote, bloody nose strategy. I was in the same meeting she was in yesterday, and uh, all of us uh, uh, have been shaking our heads. Uh, the, the national media did what it always does, and they've reported that the president's been advised on this, and this is one of the options that we have. And we were told clearly uh, by administration people, is about as high up as it gets, that there is no such thing as a bloody nose strategy, that they've never talked about it, they've never considered it, they've never used that term, and uh, it is not something that uh, the people ought to be talking about. So thank you, Senator Shaheen, for uh, bringing that up, and, and uh, this is a good hearing, actually, uh, to do that in. Um, and, and obviously, I mean, that, that, that thing has uh, repercussions that, uh, that uh, one can't even imagine. So uh, it, it's a good thing that that's, that's never been talked about. Um, however, uh, talking about the, uh, the North Korea strategy, uh, Ms. Thornton, I, the chairman asked you a question. I didn't quite get an answer to that, and he asked about who is the responsible person. Obviously, it's the President of the United States. But you mentioned, I think his specific question was, who's steering, who's steering the boat on this right now? Who is the person steering the boat on this right now? And you mentioned the March 17th committee uh, that came up with the strategy. And uh, I guess, can you give us a little more direct? Do, do we need to talk to... Secretary Tillerson, if, if we're looking for the nuanced sentence that has to be put on the table, is it Secretary Tillerson that we talked to? I, I thought the Vice President did a, a, a fabulous job when he went to South Korea uh, of laying out uh, exactly uh, what's on America's mind when it comes to North Korea. And words matter and uh, things got to be nuanced right, particularly in this situation. Who, who is the person that the, that the chairman was, uh, was seeking to identify? Is that you? Is it the Secretary of State? Uh, well, State? Obviously the President. Yeah. I mean, obviously this is a, a whole of government effort. It comes from the President, but certainly the Secretary of State has been in the lead on all of the diplomatic efforts to build this global coalition of maximum pressure. We held a, a meeting of a number of foreign ministers in Vancouver recently where we uh, expanded that coalition very meaningfully, I think. And so uh, we, are, we are following the Secretary's direction and, and our bureau, I think, for the State Department is in the lead on this effort, but we make use of colleagues across the department and across the interagency of the U.S. government to help us with that. Okay, thank you. Ms. Thompson, uh, the one, two, three agreements, there's a lot of us here that are big fans of the one, two, three agreements for lots and lots of different reasons. Um, I, I hope you will commit to continue to pursue them whenever possible. If a country doesn't come to us, they're going to they're gonna go somewhere else to, uh, to probably an adversary. Well, not necessarily an adversary, but 
it could be an adversary, and that's not in our best interest. Uh, you on board with the one, two, threes? Are you, uh, you feel good about those? I, I echo those sentiments, Senator. Okay, thank you very much. Japan's agreement is up in 2018. Are, are you, has that, where is that right now? Are you engaged in that yet or not? Uh, no, Senator, I've not been engaged with that. If confirmed, that would be part of my portfolio. Have you been briefed on it as far no, as we're there? Okay, thank you very much. Um, the uh, the uh, treaties we have, uh, the arms control treaties that we have, uh, all of us have been sometimes preoccupied with cheating on those treaties. Uh, I, I led the, uh, the fight against the New START agreement, which I lost on the floor, and I'd like to have that vote again. I think maybe the vote would be a little different today than it was then. And cheating was a huge issue uh, at that point. Um, the, uh, the other uh, uh, treaties that we have, obviously in this setting, uh, non-classified setting, we can't talk about uh, exactly what that, uh, what constitutes uh, or what's been going on as far as the cheating is concerned. We've had Secretary of State sitting in the chair you're sitting in and went over this with him and uh, he wrung his hands and talked about how bad it was and how terrible it was and we can't put up with it. But it kept happening, and we really didn't do anything uh, much about that. What are your thoughts on that? Where, 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 where do you come from when we catch somebody cheating? And, and obviously, we can't deal with everyone because it would release uh, methods and sources that we can't disclose. What, what are your thoughts on, on what you're going to do when you find out that uh, these people are cheating? Thank you for that question, Senator. Uh, I think success will lie uh, in, a, in a number of areas. One, I have uh, confidence on our intelligence community. Uh, as we continue to build that out. You know, as do I. Uh, the eyes and ears on uh, our adversaries and when they're not uh, ab abiding by the rules. I also have great confidence on our allies and partners, and I think it's important that we have we strengthen those existing relationships and, and reach out to those uh, that are looking towards the West and build upon that. I think that's going to be our success as a, to use a military term, a combat multiplier. Uh, if we get uh, additional countries assisting with that and putting pressure on their end so it's not a, a unilateral United States action. Um, my time is up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I, I had about a minute and a half of time before I turned to Senator Menendez uh, uh, from my first questioning period. Two new start. Um, just, uh, Ms. Thompson, I mean, it, it seems to me that the START treaties actually um, achieved the desired goals that were laid out. Would you agree or disagree with that? I would agree with that, Senator. So we've basically caused both of our countries to reduce the amount of warheads and delivery systems, which in our case has allowed us to save monies to invest in modernization to make sure that the um, nuclear warheads and delivery systems that we have actually work versus having a huge inventory of them, not knowing whether they uh, can be delivered or not uh, at huge expense. It's allowed us to focus ourselves in a, in a, in a much better way. Is that correct? It is correct. Thank you. And so far, um, has the other party adhered generally to this agreement, not INF, but to the START Treaty itself? As I understand, I haven't received classified updates, and I know just from open source that uh, they reported that they have. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ms. Thornton, our, our national security strategy defines China as a rival and a revisionist power. It lays out that China and Russia challenge American power, influence, and interests attempting to erode American security and prosperity, and I'm reading directly from the strategy. Given this assessment, how should U.S. diplomacy towards China be revised 
compared to prior administrations who looked to build on the cooperative elements of our relationship with China as a partner and to encourage China to be a responsible stakeholder and also as a way of addressing the competitive aspects of our relationship. Thank you very much, Senator, for that question, which is a big question. Um, I think, uh, you know, what we have seen in recent years is, a, is that we've moved to an inflection point in our relationship with China, and the national security strategy reflects, I think, that realization where we need to preserve space to cooperate with China. It's, it's the biggest country in the world, second largest economy in the world, and we have a whole range of issues that we need to deal with them on permanent member of the UN Security Council, et cetera. Um, but the, this national security strategy reflects the realization that we're also going to have to compete in a lot of areas with a China that is uh, growing in power, both economic, military, and, um, and diplomatic. So and what do we, I appreciate that, mm -hmm. what do we specifically, what, what would be, if you confirm, what would be your advocacy of how we change our So policy? I think, uh, well, we need to, uh, first of all, uh, make sure that we are working with other partners in the region who are also coming to the same realization, which they are, um, continue to uh, push back on bad behavior, call out, um, use the tools that are at our disposal, whether they be trade remedies, uh, sanctions, other, other tools, um, and also just diplomatic engagement, I think is quite effective with China. China wants to have a, a good relationship with the United States, which is um, something that um, you know, gives us entree to uh, deal with them on a diplomatic level on a, many of these issues. And uh, we, they also care a lot about their standing in the world. And so working together with other countries well, and partners to push back on bad behavior, let me ask call you some, out. Let me ask you some specifics. So uh, do you believe that China is doing uh, all that it should be doing to help us meet the challenge of North Korea? Well, I think China is doing a lot to help us meet the challenge of North is Korea. It doing I don't think all they're that it doing everything doing. that they could be doing, and we're continuing to work with them to push them. So to do if, more. if we want to get China to do more and we want it to change its calibration as to how it's thinking about North Korea, should we consider naming China a currency manipulator? Should we consider sanctioning Chinese banks that are facilitating North Korean transactions? Should we be reviewing our one China policy? How do we get China's focus? Uh, and calibration to change? Well, I think what we have to do is, is prioritize and uh, go after the issues that we are focused on with regard to China, which in, in the administration's current approach is North Korea, uh, trade and economic relations, and also uh, some law enforcement cooperation on things like opioids, um, et cetera. And I think, uh, you know, we can work with China on North Korean issues. We certainly need to continue to press uh, for sanctions on entities that are end running the UN sanctions regime, and we'll do that, as I mentioned to Senator Gardner earlier. Um, but uh, also continue to work with them because they are the most important player in implementing the, those sanctions and making the difference in, in ratcheting up the pressure in North Korea. Um, on other issues, trade and economic issues, we need to use the, the trade tools that we have at our disposal. We're preparing a, a host of measures and we're continuing to engage with the Chinese to let them know the areas where we see uh, backsliding, where we feel agreements haven't been observed and, um, and go after those either hopefully through diplomatic engagement, if not through All right, thank you. Ms. Thompson, let me ask you. Uh the START Treaty in 2021 can be extended for five years. Uh, if circumstances surrounding the treaty remain the same, which right now 
we have compliance. Uh, and even in the midst of malign activities like Ukraine cyber attacks uh, during our elections, noncompliance with the INF, the one positive area is New Start. Would you uh, be a proponent of extending the treaty for five years? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator. I, I honestly think it's too, too soon to tell. Uh, much changes in our world uh, over the course of days and weeks, much less years. I can commit to you that I, I will uh, always stand up. What would have to change? If, everything, if, if Russia's obeying and we're obeying and we're living under the treaty, what would change in your mind that would want us to break away from that? There may be other situations in the globe that associated with Russia. I, I would say you know, Syria as an example, maybe others, where it would be a tool in our diplomatic toolkit that we might want to use uh, to get an agreement in another area uh, associated with Russia. Well, I have several other questions, but in deference to our colleagues, I'll wait to the end. Thank you, sir. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Um, Ms. Thornton, there was an article I have here on October 22nd in the Wall Street Journal of last year, and it says that FBI agents in May of last year were prepared to arrest or detain four officials from China's Ministry of State Security, which is the equivalent of our CIA, for conducting illegal official business while traveling through the U.S. on transit visas. These officials had traveled to New York City to pressure Guo Wenwei, a, health, a wealthy Chinese businessman who applied for asylum in the United States to return to China and stop using social media to accuse Chinese officials and tycoons of corruption. The article goes on to say that while FBI agents were at the airport and prepared to arrest or detain these officials before they departed to China, they could not secure final sign-off from Washington. According to this article, some senior administrative officials described you and some of your colleagues as not supporting this FBI operation and, quote, improperly hindering law enforcement efforts to address China's repeated violations of U.S. sovereignty and law, end quote. Is it true that you opposed that arrest? Um, I, I'm not sure that I was involved in that decision-making process, but I do know that it was an interagency decision and that there were interagency meetings on this issue that came to the, to the conclusion. Do you recall being involved in the interagency decisions? I do not. So your testimony today is that this article and the claim about you in particular being involved in this decision-making is false, that you did not, as the article says, hinder law enforcement efforts to arrest them. The FBI had a recommendation to arrest them, and your testimony is that you did not uh, hinder that. I was not involved in those meetings. I know that there were interagency meetings and that it was the decision of the interagency um, to not arrest them. So you, you were not involved in any of the inner, just to, I want to be clear, you were not involved in any of the discussions, interagency meetings, you had nothing to do with a decision by this, by anyone in Washington to ask the FBI not to arrest them. You had nothing to do with that decision. I mean, I was aware of the conversations that were going on at the time and after the fact. But you did not weigh in. I, I did not weigh in. Okay. Um, okay. I want to ask you another question. There's a and I just, again, because you're acting in this capacity already and you've been involved in these efforts for a long time, this is the website of the State Department. Uh, I had a chart, but I didn't put it up. With your permission, I just want to hold up this paper. It used to have the flag of Taiwan in the website. It no longer has the Taiwanese flag. Do you know how that happened? Were you aware of how that decision was made to take it down? Uh, yes, I am aware. The... Um Consular Affairs Bureau rolled out a new uh, website for travel advisories that was done through a contract um, and um, 
was not um, seen by our office. And uh, following the publication, we don't uh, recognize, of course, Taiwan as an independent country, and we don't recognize the flag of the ROC as a, a country where we have official relations. And our, our policy is to not display the flag of the ROC on US official government uh, websites. That's a new policy, because it was on there before. No, this is a new, I believe it's a new website, but um, we, we are, it's not I'm sorry, a new Sorry, it's a new contractor, not, not a new website. This sorry. is the old website has the flag, the new one does not. So it's not an old website, it's an, might be a new contractor that designed the website, is what you're saying. I'm, I'm not sure what specific site that is, but www.state.gov. That can't. But I mean, I'm just saying that it's not a new policy not to display the the flag. Well, the flag is here. So, so was that just a blip or something? I guess it was somebody inadvertently put it in, and you guys took it out. The bottom line is, this is the way it's going to stay. We're not going to. We used to have the flag. It's not going to be on there anymore. There was a change. There's no doubt there was a change. The websites, the Graphics are identical. Someone took down the flag. Um, well, on a policy note with regards to that, let me ask you this. Would, would, do you, would you commit to encouraging high-level visits between senior U.S. government officials to meet with Taiwanese counterparts in Taipei? Um, well, Senator, we have a very robust um, unofficial relationship with Taiwan that's grounded in our our long-time uh, policy based on those three uh, joint communiques and, of course, our commitments under the Taiwan Relations Act, which are very important. And we have frequent exchange with uh, uh, people on Taiwan, and um, I think that I certainly support continuing that robust, unofficial relationship. But what about having high-level visits between U.S. government officials to meet with their counterparts in Taipei? We, we have ongoing, um, as I say, uh, visits by all realm of, of people from uh, the U.S. visiting uh, Taiwan, and we certainly continue to support that inter interaction. Okay. Mr. Chairman, can we ask Senator Rubio to submit that document for the record to the committee? Five. Yeah. Five website? Absolutely. Thank you. Can I submit it for the record? Absolutely, without, uh, without objection. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses uh, for your service and congratulations on your nominations. Um, a question first for uh, Ms. Thornton and Ms. Thompson. Uh, two days ago, the DNI, uh, Dan Coates, appeared before the Senate Intelligence Committee, and he testified, quote, North Korea will be the most volatile and confrontational WMD threat in the coming year. In addition to its ballistic missile tests and growing number of nuclear warheads for these missiles, North Korea will continue its longstanding chemical and biological warfare programs also. Do you both agree with that assessment of DNI Coates? I do agree with the director, sir. Yes, sir. Um, do you also agree with the stated position of Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and others that while the U.S. needs to maintain all its options to do with this threat, we are a diplomacy first nation and are going to look for a diplomatic a resolution that would stop uh, the North Korean ambitions to get nuclear weapons or have them be able to be deployed against the United States or allies? I do agree with the Secretary, yes, sir. So what, what, whatever the percentage chance that we would assess to finding a diplomatic resolution with North Korea, that's something that we need to try. If I could move now just directly to 
uh, Ms. Thompson in the same hearing, because this is now not in Ms. Thornton's area of the world, in the same hearing the DNI went on to say, Iran's implementation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, has extended the time it would take to develop a nuclear weapon from several months to about a year, provided Iran continues to adhere to the deals of major provisions. Do you agree with that assessment? I do, sir. Secretaries Tillerson and Mattis have stated before this committee and the Armed Services Committee that Iran is complying with the JCPOA and that the deal is in America's national security interest. Do you share those opinions? Senator, I haven't received the classified briefings during my time at State. I did as National Security Advisor. During that time, the intelligence community briefed that they were not in violation. Um, will you take it uh, from me that both Secretaries Tillerson and Mattis have publicly testified before these committees that they think Iran is complying with the JCPOA and that the deal is in America's national security interest? Sir, if they're complying, uh, they are adhering to the, to the JCPOA, and I have trust and confidence in both those secretaries. Okay, thank you. Um, Given that, given that the North Korean threat is the most significant threat, uh, and according to DNI Coates, and you guys agree with that, uh, given that you agree that we need to focus whatever energy we have on finding a diplomatic resolution with North Korea, if that's possible, given that uh, the DNI has stated that uh, the JCPO has stretched out the time for Iranian uh, efforts to get a nuclear <laughs> weapon and that Secretaries Tillerson and Mattis say that they're complying and that the deal is in our national interest. What effect would stepping back from the Iran deal or, or moving away from it, what message would that send to North Korea about the wisdom of doing a diplomatic deal with the United States? Thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, the importance of the, the Iranian regime to uh, very familiar with this, with this committee, extending their, their footprint across the Middle East and the globe. We've seen, uh, oh, separate from the JCPOA. Well, and I'm going to ask about that separately. Um, but I'm now talking about a nuclear deal. Why would any nation enter into a nuclear deal with the United States if the United States backed away from other nuclear deals that uh, U.S. officials said were in our national interest, U.S. officials said were being complied with? Sir, great question. Uh, I, I would wager that uh, North Korea will look uh, and for Iran to see how they react. But in the end, I have, again, with the North Korean regime, that he will make his own decisions. He'll make his own decisions. Um, do you think the U.S. should demonstrate good faith and live up to uh, agreements that we enter into? I do, sir. Yeah. Um, I, well, you, you see where I'm going with this. I, I am extremely worried about the administration, about the president, frankly, stepping back from an Iran deal when his own key security officials are saying that Iran is complying with it. Um, on the non-nuclear uh, issues that you were starting to raise, I think the uh, committee is in general agreement on those, and we've acted strongly around sanctions, uh, legislation we put on the president's desk, act, uh, sanctioning human rights behavior, aggression in the region, uh, violations of UN missile uh, protocols. I think we're very focused on Iranian misbehavior in, in those areas. But when we have the IAEA, our European partners, and chief security professional saying Iran is complying with the JCPOA, and the administration suggests we may step back from it, at the same time as we want North Korea to potentially entertain doing a diplomatic deal with the United States, I think we send the message, we, we, we risk sending the message, that if you enter into a nuclear deal with the United States, the United States won't comply with it. And I think that would take whatever that percentage is of North Korea doing a deal, say it's 20 percent, drive it down to virtually zero. Um, I'll just conclude and say, you know, I'm a member of the Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committee, 
And I feel like the joint responsibility of these committees means we need to minimize the risk of unnecessary war and we need to maximize the chance that we will overwhelmingly win any necessary war. I don't think we should raise the risk of unnecessary war by stepping back from international agreements that uh, are being complied with. And I'll hand that back to you, Mr. Chair. I think I still have a few seconds before turning to Markey uh, left on my time. I, 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 we are working with the administration, as you know, to try to make the agreement uh, with Iran something that's better. I think you know that. Um, a big part of that uh, depends on our European allies and how they view the efforts that we may have inside domestically. And then there's an effort underway, I think you know, to, to have some type of follow-on framework with our European allies. Um, I know that you were instrumental, as was Sen Senator Menendez and others, to give us an opportunity to to weigh in on this, um, I would say that in agreements like this, when we talk about the good faith of the United States, um, this was in essence entered into by one person. It wasn't entered into by Congress. I know there were a lot of people advising. And uh, I think what that speaks to is that when we have agreements like this that we want our nation to honor, um, we should do it in a fashion where Congress also weighs in, and that's what led to the to the legislation that we all worked on. But, but uh, I too hope that we're able to resolve and strengthen this in a way that's good for the United States, uh, good for the world. And uh, uh, I guess we have until May 12th to hope that again, our European allies are, will work with us in that regard. Senator Markey, um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much, uh, Ms. Staunton. I'd like to turn to. Uh, Asia, according to the recent national security strategy, the Trump administration pledged to redouble its commitments to established alliances and partnerships while expanding and deepening relationships with new partners in a region it describes as the most populous and economically dynamic part of the world. Um, we have a serious threat from North Korea to the United States. Uh, China presents a uh, significant strategic challenge to U.S. economic and security interests. But judging by the State Department's fiscal year 2019 budget request, it is hard to believe that the administration agrees with that assessment that it made. The President's budget request released this week recommends cutting the State Department and USAID budgets by approximately 30 percent over the actual 2017 uh, budget. Uh, within the State Department budget, how would funding for Asia-related issues change as a result of those cuts from 2017 to 2019 uh, budget year? Well, thank you, Senator. Um, I think, uh, you know, we in the East Asia Pacific Bureau of the State Department are, are fairly used to uh, dealing with lean resource issues. We're a very small bureau. We have a very small proportion overall of assistance funding. I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the budget numbers that were released this, this week are actually an increase for our part of the world over what was requested uh, in last year's budget. And so I'm, I'm certainly hoping that we would see, um, along with the uh, emphasis in the national security strategy, um, you know, the share of the pie going to EAP, I, I think it is getting uh, larger. Um, well, um, that's not my 
understanding, but I will, um, I will follow up with you on that issue because obviously, uh, especially when we're talking about North Korea, um, it's very difficult to see a successfully implemented North Korea policy uh, for both diplomacy and sanctions enforcement. Uh, if there is no U.S. ambassador to South Korea, if the coordinator for sanctions policy position is eliminated, it's an almost shocking set of decisions that have been made in terms of ensuring that these positions are filled and that they are fully funded in order to make sure that we avoid uh, a catastrophic uh, situation in Korea. Uh, and many of the other offices seem to be understaffed as well. Uh, I have sent a letter to Secretary Tillerson expressing my concerns about the impact on Asia. Uh, and so I would appreciate uh, answers to the questions I'm, I'll be submitting to you uh, in the uh, very near future. Uh, on the question of uh, South Korea, I mean of uh, Saudi Arabia, um, Ms. Thompson, uh, we were told that there is a process that is now in place to determine what the offer will be to Saudi Arabia in terms of a one, two, three uh, agreement. Um, once this process is concluded and before any formal discussions with Saudi Arabia, uh, the Atomic Energy Act requires the President to keep this committee fully and currently informed of any initiative on negotiations relating to a new or amended agreement for peaceful nuclear cooperation. Uh, and I don't think that uh, means just filling us in after the fact, after the deal has been negotiated. Um, will you commit to providing us with the information with regard to what the offer to the Saudi Arabians are going to, is going to be after you complete your process? Thank you, Senator, and thank you for making the time yesterday for our discussion yesterday, okay. uh, very fruitful. Uh, I can commit to you that I will work with you and this committee uh, to keep you informed uh, if confirmed. Uh, but again, before the offer is made to the Saudi Arabians, will this committee know what that offer is going to be? Uh, sir, I can commit to you if confirmed. I will work with the committee. I'm, I'm not privy to where it is in the process, and I would work with the experts in the interagency and with the secretary to make sure we keep the committee informed. Uh, well, again, uh, under the law, you have a responsibility to keep this committee, Absolutely. quote, fully and currently informed of any initiative or negotiations. And finally, on the issue of Japan, um, uh, Japan uh, continues uh, 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 to give us raised concerns about reprocessing of spent fuel into separated plutonium, when one, it already has 48 tons of separated plutonium. Two, Japan does not have an operating facility to turn its plutonium into fuel for nuclear reactors. And three, the vast majority of Japan's nuclear reactors are not currently operating anyway. Uh, do you think the United States should consider renegotiating the 123 agreement with Japan over its continued plutonium production to no purpose, which seems to be related to the generation of electricity uh, and could cause a real proliferation risk in that entire region? Thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, and I assure you that I will uh, dig into this issue if confirmed. A great confidence in our diplomatic relationship with the Japanese, uh, both from the President on down to the recency of with the Secretary, a very strong relationship both here and uh, over in Japan with our strong ambassador as well. Uh, and so we will definitely work with the committee and I will dig into that one. If yeah, I, I think what's happening in Japan is 
potentially contributing to uh, an increased risk for nuclear proliferation in that region, and the same thing would be true for a 1-2-3 agreement with Saudi Arabia that did not absolutely maintain the gold standard, and I think that we're going to need a very close cooperation between the committee and uh, your uh, department in order to make sure that that is the case. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, did you have some follow-up questions? Go ahead. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. So uh, very quickly, Ms. Thornton, would you commit to us that if confirmed any recommendations you give regarding the trafficking in persons report will be based solely on a country's efforts to combat trafficking and not other unrelated factors? Yes, if confirmed, I can certainly say that. Thank you very much. Uh, Ms. Thompson, uh, should, uh, there's a, some suggestion that we're going to have uh, the possibility of a new one, two, three agreement with Saudi Arabia. Do you believe the gold standard should be implemented in any such agreement? Thank you, Senator. I think we should always uh, set our standards to meet the highest standards for the United States. So in this case, the gold standard would be the highest standard. Is that a fair statement? That, uh, that is the standard in the community. Again, not privy to the conversations, but always want to work to the highest standards we can get. All right. What we don't need is a rush to nuclear uh, power in a tinderbox of the world. And so uh, that's why the gold standard is so important. Mr. Fannin, I don't want you to feel left out of my affection. So uh, let me ask you this. Uh, we talked yesterday about some of your past work um, and regarding your recusal from certain issues. And you noted in our meeting yesterday that you believe there would be a way for the ethics team to carve out some of your involvement. Have you been able to get any further clarity on that? Because I'm trying to figure out what is it that you're carving out? Yes, thank you for the time uh, yesterday, Senator, and thank you for your attention to the question. Um, if confirmed, I can pledge to work uh, diligently with the ethics attorneys and follow their instruction to the letter with respect to recusals. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we're, uh, I appreciate that, and that's a, that's a good answer to start off with, but I'm going to want to know exactly what ethics is talking about in terms of carve-outs. Is it company-specific? Is it policy sectors? Because obviously there's a big difference. There's a big difference between carving yourself out from a specific company's involvement in which state and your particular position of ENR would involve, or whether there's a policy issue that would be involved. So I, I, I hope we can get that answer so we can uh, move your nomination along. Let me ask you this. As a lobbyist for Murphy Oil, you lobbied against my bills in the 111th and 12th Congress to hold oil companies accountable for disasters <laughs> they cause. So as you're promoting energy uh, across the globe, what degree of responsibility do you believe oil companies should bear for disaster mitigation when they cause a spill or disaster? Yes, thank you for the question, Senator. Um, we had the opportunity to discuss uh, that, uh, that bill, that legislation, and uh, um, I, 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 during our discussion, I, I uh, commented that I laud the spirit of which it was, which it was offered uh, to make sure that, uh, that to, to hold uh, polluters to account. Um, the situation with that bill, and we, we discussed it in particular, but more broadly to your question, uh, I believe, as I spoke to in my opening, uh, that transparency is critical. And a part of that is to have clearly delineated accountability measures. So is it fair to say that if you mess up, you clean up? Yes, Senator. 
All right. Now, there's a lot of emphasis uh, about uh, fossil fuels with the administration, but your department's stated objective under the State Department also talks about renewable energy sources as part of that. Are you committed to the department's statement of its own purposes as it relates to ENR's mission globally? Yes, Senator, thank you for the question. Um, the, my understanding of the Bureau, and as you read it to me during our, during our, uh, our meeting, was, is that they're agnostic as, as to fuel source, and they're there to support um, delivery of energy and to support U.S. firms, et cetera. But it, in terms of the type of source, it's agnostic. Well, uh, my understanding from reading the, the statement is that it's, not necessarily agnostic. It's not agnostic if you say the pursuit of alternative energy and energy efficiency and greater transparency and accountability in the energy sector. The pursuit of something is not agnostic. It is actually a proactive word. Yes, Senator. I was speaking in terms of uh, it's truly an all of the above uh, approach is my understanding of the Bureau's work. Um, and so it, it, it wouldn't be a, a weighted measure of one fuel source over another. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I have a series of other questions. I'll submit it for the record. I look forward to your answers. Thank, thank you. you all. We thank you all for your testimony and your willingness to serve in these capacities, as was mentioned on the front end. Uh, there will be other questions, as Senator Menendez just alluded to, and so we're going to keep the record open until the close of business on Monday. Uh, I know in this particular case you'll want to uh, – You'll want to answer those very rapidly. We would hope that you would do so. Again, um, thank you for the great testimony today, and I look forward to your service to our nation. Thank you so much. The meeting's adjourned.